Philippians chapter 2. Once you've found Philippians chapter 2, we're also going to read in a moment as well from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you have one of those Bible ribbons handy, it would be good to put your, uh, one of the other ribbons in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This evening, we're going to be looking at the topic found in questions 46 to question 50 of the Westminster Large. Uh, catechism, and I said the topic because, again, we are really not preaching from the catechism, we're preaching from the Word of God. And we are looking at the topic taught in the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is one of our subordinate standards. And subordinate means it is under the Word of God. We need to have strong grounding, dear friends, from the Word of God to ever depart from such a faithful document as Westminster Larger Catechism or the Shorter Catechism or the Confession of Faith. Uh, But our title here this evening, looking at this topic from the Westminster Larger Catechism, is Christ's Humiliation. Christ's Humiliation. And this is what we're going to be looking at from these two passages uh, and these two texts we're going to read in a moment. Now before we read them, I just want us to think about what do we think about when we hear the word humiliation? Humiliation. What's the first thing that rushes into your mind? It may be that time when you were like me, first time you were asked to speak in public at school, and you froze and you couldn't say a single word. That was me. That actually happened to me. I think I was about eight years old. Every other child in the room said a load of words. It was like a game. And I still remember it to this day. And I was the only person who couldn't say a word. I was by far the quietest child in the room. I know you're probably thinking, what has happened to me since? But I've changed a little bit. Humiliation, embarrassment, uh, perhaps things that we wish we could erase from our memories, perhaps different memories from our past. And what usually comes into our mind, is it good things? No. And often things we want to forget. Now, I want us to think about this before we look at Christ's humiliation. Would we willingly choose these embarrassing, humiliating things to happen? No, none of us would choose it, willingly. It happens to everyone, of course, but none of us would choose it. A modern dictionary says this about humiliation. To reduce someone to a lower position in one's eyes or other's eyes... To make someone ashamed or embarrassed with humiliation, there's a sense of shame, uh, isn't there? There's a, there's a sense of not having done something or having fallen short of some standard. Something that can be carried around with you. Something that, that whatever you carry around with you, brings you to a lower position, maybe in the eyes of others or maybe in your own eyes. Humiliation, bringing you lower. And it's a horrible feeling if you've ever gone through it. Would we choose this for ourselves? No. What if, though, it's even taken a level further, it's not your own shame, but it's the shame of another. 
the guilt of another. Now I know we don't think we're that bad sometimes. That's sometimes the problem with our sin. We think, well, yeah, bear my sin, yeah, yeah. But imagine if there was somebody, you know those people, sometimes you're, they're on the news, horrible people, and they're, maybe they're under the death sentence, or there's something, everybody in society thinks these are horrible people. They would shun them and avoid them if they ever saw them. Would you take the shame of that person? Not of a good person, a bad person. Perhaps they've done something horrible, they're not a good person. Would you gladly take their shame, bearing their guilt and bearing their punishment, bearing the mockery of the world, bearing the scorn of society? Christ did that for us. He humbled himself and he took our shame, not for good people, for us. And he was brought low in the eyes of many and even under his father, under the wrath of his father. This Sabbath evening, let us consider how Christ willingly humbled himself for us, for us willingly. He was not forced into it. He did it out of love for his people. So Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 11 first from Philippians chapter 2. And then we'll go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. Let us hear God's holy and infallible word. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you. Which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those in earth and of those under the earth. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And please turn with me now as well to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to read from the first nine verses of this chapter. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, 
And beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and fellowship of the ministering to the saints, not only as we have hoped, but that they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through, the pov- through his poverty might become rich. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and his infallible word. Our texts that we're going to be looking at for this doctrine of Christ's humility will be mainly uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, but also that one verse at the end of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, which says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Amen. The eternal God, the one without beginning and without end, the Alpha and the Omega, the truth, the way, and the life, somehow humbled himself. I think we've completely lost the sense of how God humble himself, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Because we've often got a very small view of who Jesus is. If you lived 2,000 years ago, the idea may seem utterly scandalous. The, the infinite God would assume to himself human flesh and the form of a servant. The Jews, 2,000 years ago, believed in one true God, infinite, without limit, eternal, without shadow of turning, and he fills all things. This is what Isaiah cried out in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. He's different from us. He's holy, holy, holy. But yet, this eternal one, the Son of God, became the Son of Man. The Son of Man. This is a title that goes right back to the Old Testament as well. But he became the Son of Man. The Son of God, who is one being with the Father. These are not two beings getting together with similar attributes. He is one God. The Spirit of God. And these three are one. And the Son of God, not the Father, not the Spirit, assumes flesh to himself. Notice the language I'm using. I don't mean added flesh to himself. God cannot have anything added to him. Nor can he have anything subtracted from him. He assumes flesh to himself. 
He is conceived in the womb of Mary miraculously. But he's born like you or I. Apart, well, from being sinless and from being completely perfect. He lives a somewhat, and I use this term loosely enough, normal childhood. From the outside, in one sense it's very normal, in another sense it's not because Jesus is very different. He, he obeys his parents and everything and he honors them and everything and he keeps the fifth commandment in every jot and tittle from his heart. We know very little about Jesus' childhood except what has been revealed to us in the early part of Luke's gospel. Yes, this is... This was prophesied that he would assume human flesh. Yes, in the Old Testament, uh, we can go to various passages, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and, and we, should, we say, they should have known, but they didn't. And to be honest, because they had such a view of God, the infinite God, the, the, the God who could not suffer, that they, they couldn't really wrap their minds around God manifest in the flesh who would be able to suffer? See, Jesus had two nature, has two natures. In his divinity, he cannot suffer. He cannot be touched. He's without passions. But in his human nature, ah, true man in every sense of the word. And this is staggering. The, the infinite assumes a nature that isn't infinite, it's finite. Became man. He grew up, he learned, he studied. It's staggering, isn't it? He, Jesus learned. He grew in grace as true man. He didn't change one jot in terms of his divinity, though. He did all this Willingly. He did all this to take the shame of his people. He did all this to rescue a people. All who look to him by faith. All he asks you is that you trust him. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't ask you to do anything more than what he's done himself. Actually, he could not possibly do Anything close to what he did. But he asks us to follow him. Trust him. Taking upon him his yoke. His yoke, which is his burden, is easy and light. By not exalting our name, not making a name for ourselves, but exalting his name. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let us, we're going to look at these, uh, this doctrine under three headings. This doctrine of Christ's humiliation. And the first, the, the, number one, willing to serve. Number two, willing to suffer. And number three, willing to surrender. Number one, willing to serve. Christ came from the glories of heaven, from perfection, from the enjoyment, the perfect enjoyment of his Father in heaven. And it says in verses 6 and 7 of Philippians, Paul is writing to the Philippians, really exhorting them to be humble. And 
Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then what's the example of the humility of Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Who being in the form of God and assuming to himself a lower form, which is, which is greater, God or man? The creator takes on the form of a servant, a creature, a creature. He came and assumed this form. And he will forever be, have this form of God. If, you, if he is God, if he ever was God, this form of God can never be done away with. Can never be set aside at all. Because he is who he is. Jesus is just as omnipresent, which is, means he's everywhere. He fills all things both in heaven and earth. As much as the Father does. As much as the Spirit of God does. He is just as loving. He is just as wise and pure in power and glory. And I think we've lost that sense largely. Much of the last hundred years in the church. We have lost the sense of the Christ who is one with the Father. And I think really we. Much of. The church today is make Christ someone we can almost put it like this, relate to. Um, someone who's our buddy. But we've lost the sense of him being infinite as God. And I think we've actually come up with a kind of an idea you know, it's partly God, partly man, and mixed together. No, true God and true man. Today, I think we think of the Trinity, and this is what happens. This is kind of in a lot of modern books. If you read books on the Trinity, they almost describe the Trinity as three individual members coming together, solving problems. That's not the Trinity. God is not a kind. There's no kind of God. Jesus is God kind. The Father is God kind. They are one. They're not of the same club or group coming together. They are one. One. Not like a family is one. But they are truly in every sense one. Not made up of parts. Not made up of three parts or anything like that. He is one. The Son is one with the Father. And as He is one with the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one will. One divine will, not three divine wills. One divine will. Why do I say all that? From eternity past, there's no serving of the Son's will to the Father's will. That's important because that is part of his humiliation. And you might say, I've never seen that being challenged. It's been challenged a lot these days. It is. He was born under the law. He came to serve. You might say, well, isn't that the state in the past? No, no. He was one with the Father. There's no, there's no hierarchy in, in, in the Trinity. 
They are one. Because, dear friends, in just him coming to serve, that was part of his humiliation. That was part of the scandal, you could say, of the incarnation. Taking on the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ has a divine will, which is one with the Father. The act is one. But he also has a human will. And this is the one that's probably popping into your head. You're probably thinking, ah, but Jesus said, not my will, but your be done. This is speaking of his human will, but we'll get into that in a moment. Now, his will, both his divine will and his human will are perfect, sinless, spotless. One is in the form of God, one is in the form of a servant. It says in Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. To keep the law and to live under that law. Serving and keeping it so that lawbreakers like you and I, that God can look upon us and say, not a lawbreaker anymore, a law keeper. Someone who's kept the law. And so that when you come into the presence of Almighty God to worship him, he takes delight in you. Not just forgiveness, yes forgiveness, but more than forgiveness. The keeping of the law. Perfectly. That's what Jesus did. He came to serve and to keep the law. It says this in Matthew 3, verses 15 to 17. But Jesus answered and said, permit it, to, permit it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, this is speaking about, um, Jesus is speaking to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is like, I can't possibly baptize you. You're not a sinner. This is what's going through John the Baptist's head. But he says, what's the reason he gives for coming to be baptized? To fulfill All righteousness. He's coming to keep the law in our place. Jesus didn't need to be washed for the remission of sins. But he did it in our place. When he being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He kept the law. It's not just that the Son is God. And yes, God has delight in him because of that from all eternity. But it's more than that. As true man, he has kept the law perfectly. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He had a servant's heart. He came to serve. It says this in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now remember the yokes they would put them on the back of a. It's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing to hold on the back of you. What he's saying? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Learn from me, gentle and lowly. He came as a servant. It says, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. If the infinite God came to be gentle and lowly, to serve, to do the lowest task, you have to remember the infinite God is served. The infinite God is the one who is 
who doesn't come down to the menial task to serve us. This is what's so shocking about the incarnation. The early church actually got this. It's like, and they tried to tell others, this is what's so incredible about it. And then there were some groups like the Gnostics, and they didn't, they wanted to change that incredibleness. Gentle and lowly. He did the lowest tasks. He washed the feet of the disciples. We read that. We're so used to hearing it. And we're, oh yeah, you know, we'll wash feet. No, that was the lowest job. The feet were filthy from, from walking around the streets. And you would only get certain servants to do that. But no task was too low for him. He humbled himself. And and as we serve Christ as his people, is there anything we said, I'm not doing that. No, no. Because it brings us low. John 13 verses 14 and 15 says this. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now what does that mean? Does that mean we take off everybody's shoes and we start... Wait, wait, wait. It's not really about feet washing. It's about serving another. It's about following Christ's example about there's no task that you think is beneath me. You know, even today, you know, I, I think I'm... I'm somewhere like an old man when I give out about my generation. But there's certain jobs, isn't there, that younger generation are saying, ah, I wouldn't do that. People wouldn't clean toilets or something like that. But I know of people from South America who came to Dublin that I met there, and they were doing top jobs. They were so happy to do those menial jobs. They were not, they were not too proud to work these jobs. But here's the infinite God doing this. This is what's incredible about it. It's the infinite God showing us an example of what it meant to be true men and to serve others. So part of his humiliation was to serve. And by the way, friends, it's not just that we serve others. We also allow other people to serve us. It's for their blessing and for your own blessing as well. So we serve others, but we also allow other people to serve us as well. So number two now, willing to suffer. Willing to suffer. So willing to serve, willing to suffer. It's not that we're seeking to suffer. I think sometimes it's almost like, yes, I want to suffer. It's not that. It's not that at all. Jesus, who was sinless, was tempted with good things. It says uh, in verse 7, Verse 7 and 8, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. Verse 8, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And in humbling himself, he was tempted. In humbling himself, he suffered. In this temptation in Matthew chapter 4, by the devil. Now, we think, how can a sinless God be really tempted and attracted by the devil's temptations? But look at what he was tempted by. Good things. There's nothing wrong with food, is there? There's nothing wrong with him wanting his glory. It all belongs to him. 
And there's also nothing wrong with him, in a sense, in the right context, not wanting to suffer. There was the temptation to go away from the cross. It says this in Matthew 26, verse 39. He went a little further and fell on his face, prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it, be, if it is possible, let this call pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In his human will, he was tormented by the thoughts of the cross. I think he he kept going back. Willing to do the will of his father. In every jot, in every tittle. I think we've got to realize, dear friends, he never got a jollies out of going to the cross. Do you know there's some men and, and or women, or, you know, they may, yes, I like a challenge. It's nothing to do with that. If it, look at these words. If, this, if it be possible that this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. To suffer under the wrath of his father. He didn't wish to suffer. But he was willing to suffer. See the difference? Willing to suffer. Because he had such a love for his father. And it's such a love for you. The believer. A love for us as people. Matthew 26 verse 42. Again a second time he went away praying. Oh my father if this cup cannot pass away from me. Unless I drink it. Your will be done. See the torment. Your will be done. We have this record of his prayers before God. To show how much he suffered. Not just physically. Not just the physical nails. It wasn't really the cross that made him sweat drops of blood. But the thoughts of the displeasure of his father. You see that? Please the Lord to bruise him. Isaiah 53 verse 10. To crush him literally. You see dear friends. Love is not simply when it's convenient. Is it? Your best friend. The the best friends you're ever going to have. Are the people who are there. Even though when it's not convenient for them. They will go out of their way. Inconvenience themselves. And help you. It's easy to help people when it's convenient. But if it causes you to suffer in order to show love, that really shows love. A true service for God will bring us to suffer if and when needed. Now, he endured this fallen world, though rich in terms of his glory and his kingdom, he became poor. Why? For our sakes. It says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. We remind ourselves of this text. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That through, though he was rich. Yet for your sakes. He became poor. That you through his poverty. You through his humiliation. You through his suffering. Might become rich. You may have a lot in your bank balance. But it's going to be dust one day. 
it's going to be gone. Someone else is going to get your house. And even that will turn to dust one day. It will all return to dust. But the riches Christ is speaking about are eternal riches, which nothing can take away from you. If you have faith in Jesus, then you are truly rich. You may be the poorest person in the eyes of the world. You may be the the object of scorn and ridicule because you look ridiculous following Christ. But you were the richest among them. It wasn't just that he was born into a poor family in Judah. And this is part of his, think about this, this is the king of glory. He enjoyed all the riches, all the power, all the glory. And then he's born into a pretty unnoticeable family, you could say, in Judah. It's not just that he had poverty in terms of being in Galilee. Later on, he grew up in Galilee. Galilee, we know it today, but they didn't know back then. It was, a, it was an outpost of a place. Nazareth, nothing. Nothing happened in Nazareth. These were, this was like an outpost of a place. Nothing important seemed to come from there. Of course, we know it today, but 2,000 years ago, it was very different. He suffered in a world of sin, even in his early years. Why do I say that? Even in his early years, he was sinless and loved righteousness. And if you love righteousness, you're going to suffer and hate and grieve sin. When you're around it, you're not going to enjoy it. Jesus loved and loves still today righteousness. He suffered the sin of his he suffered to see the sin of his people around him. It says in question 48 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, how did Christ humble himself in this life? Christ, it says, humbled himself in this life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, and by conflicting with the indignities of the world, temptations of Satan, and the infirmities in his flesh, whether common to the nature of man, or particularly accompanying that his low Condition by conflicting with the indignities of the world, the shame of the world, the mocking, the scorn. He suffered. Yes, he suffered on the cross, the ultimate symbol of suffering. But he suffered all the way through humiliation to endure the shame of this fallen world. Look at verse 7 of Philippians chapter 2. This is a very important part of this text. Philippians chapter 2 verse 7. But made himself of no reputation. And this is commonly translated different ways. It literally means emptied himself. Now I think older translations were kind of nervous to translate it that way. Because it could be misunderstood. But literally emptied himself. In what way can we understand that emptying? Now, it can't be in terms of him being God, or otherwise he would never have been God. By virtue of him being God, he is unchangeable. But how are we to understand this? He assumes what? But made himself of no reputation, or emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or servant. Or In Greek, this is doulos, which is kind of an idea of a slave. Slave, servant, bondservant. 
in the original language, there was the same word used. It couldn't get much lower than that. And coming in the likeness of men. Men who had sinned, the indignity of that. He emptied himself, not of being God, that's impossible. How? By taking the form of a servant. By assuming this form. So that the outward manifestation of his glory was not on display. But we must also be careful to say this. His glory at no stage ever changed. Ever. One way we can think about his glory at this time, as Matthew Poole said this, veiling himself as the sun is said to be veiled, not in itself, but in regard to the intervening cloud. So you see what Poole is saying there? He's saying it's much like the cloud veiling the sun. Sun is not changed in any way, but it's veiled. His glory is veiled in this form of a servant. And so because of this, he looks pretty ordinary. He looks like any other man to the eyes. Not not to the eyes of faith, but to the physical eyes. But still as glorious as ever. And yet he suffers. He endured the mocking of the world. He endured the cross, crying out these words. In Psalm 22, verse 1, he quotes... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, he, he in agony, what he dreaded became a reality. He didn't enjoy the cross. He endured out of love. He suffered, bearing all the wrath, all the fury Every single hatred of sin that was due to our account was poured out upon the Son at that time when he, when he cried out that. Our final point then. So willing to, willing to serve, willing to suffer, willing to surrender. And dear friends, he has set us an example. We too need to be willing to serve. We too need to be willing to suffer. For him and for his glory. Verse 8 of Philippians 2. Verse 8 once again. And being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. What does this death look like to the world? If you think about it. Willing to surrender. It just sounds so defeatist doesn't it? From the point of view of the world. They think to surrender well, he's finished, isn't he? And from the outward, it it looks like an object of scorn. In Mark 15, verse 29 and 30, and those who passed by blaspheming him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. You see them, you can almost see them walking past, jeering, mocking Thinking they're so clever. Ah, you see all the things you said. <laughs> look, look at you now. It didn't look glorious to the world. He was willing to surrender to the will of God. Even though it would bring on more suffering. And it was this lowering that actually brought this victory. 
It looks completely the opposite. You know, even in the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they should inherit the earth. Well, the world sees all around them and it sees, you know, the, the Alexander of the Great, you know, the Alexander the Great kind of the idea of champion, the powerful shall inherit the earth, taking things by power and force. That's what the world thinks. No. Blessed are the meek, for they should inherit the earth. And Christ set us not only an example, but he gave us his righteousness by faith because of his humiliation. How did Christ humble himself in his death? This is question 49 of the larger catechism. Christ humbled himself in his death in having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and tormented by his persecutors. Dear friends, look at what Christ endured for you. What surrender he endured for you. Will you not be willing also to endure the scorn and rejection of mere men to follow him? Because that's often what it will bring. It won't bring the popularity of the world, especially in this generation. He himself was in complete control. By the way, during the whole thing, even when he was on the cross, he's in complete control of everything. It says this in in Acts 2, verse 23. He being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Look at this. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now, foreknowledge, it's not just that God knew about something. Uh He knew about it, and so therefore it happened. No, no. He decreed it, and because he decreed it, he knew it. God doesn't look down and learn anything. He's unchangeable. So when we say foreknowledge, we also see his decree, his power, and his glory. He ordained it. Yes, wicked hands were involved. It was wicked for the Romans to do what they did. But God even uses secondary causes to bring about his purposes. What the Romans did, what the Jews did, everything else was wicked and evil against Christ. But it was righteous, holy, glorifying to God from the point of view of God. God in control, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He died. The Son of God died. Humbled himself even to the point of death. And isn't that just amazing? The one who could not die took upon flesh so that he could die. And even lay in the grave. Now think about this. He was sinless, could not be holden by the grave. He could not remain there. And actually, after three days, there was not a, no corruption was found in him. After we die, corruption will become, we will decay away. We will turn, our bodies will turn into dust. His body, no, not at all. No corruption did he see. He humbled himself even to death on the cross to set us free. He surrendered to this humiliation. And again, not my will, O God, 
but thine be done. Question 50 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Wherein Christ, wherein consider, consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried. Buried. And continuing in the state of death. And under the power of death till the third day. Which hath been otherwise expressed in these words. He descended into hell. Or another way of saying that. Descended into the grave. Basically the same Greek word. That how much lower. How much lower. Could he have. Could he go any lower to show his love. For sinners. We could spend hours. We could spend hours here thinking about how much he. Over those. 30 plus years upon the earth that he humbled himself for sinners like you and I. We could and we should throughout our lives. Are you willing yourself though to humble yourself for his glory? To follow in his example. To trust him. Not your own righteousness. Your own righteousness are filthy. But take his righteousness, his perfect clothing, and be clothed by it. For the sake of your soul, for his glory. Brothers and sisters, is he not worthy? Isn't he worthy? Of all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. Worthy of our surrendering. You see, because here's the thing, what happens to us in salvation, what happens to a sinner he comes to a point where he's willing to surrender, no longer willing to fight with God. He bows the knee and trusts, surrendering his war with God. Because, dear friends, if you're here this evening and if you haven't trusted in Jesus, you haven't surrendered to him and you're at war with him. It's a scary thought. The one who humbled himself to death, making salvation possible to all who look to him, you're at war with him. Is he not worthy of you surrendering and following him. God calls you to surrender to him this evening. So that you may have true freedom in him for all eternity. Amen.